Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Is it a dotted eye or a not dotted eye? Do you know? I don't. I think it's Halime from the soap opera. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I say Halime. The soap operas are reference material now. We're going to put that as a source. (laughs) That's what we've got now. Merhaba. Welcome to She Builds Podcast where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. Today, we're going to talk about Turhan Sultan, a huge patron of architecture of the Ottoman Empire. I'm Norgeri Rivas, learning to be a better ally in Houston, Texas. Hi, I'm Jessica Rogers, coming to you from a dreary day out of Washington, D.C. Aw, hey there. I'm Lizzie Rar coming to you from a beautiful, fog-free day in San Francisco. Yeah, whatever. Uh, uh, it's a competition. <laughs> hey, we had fog all summer, you know? I just Let me have this win. We can celebrate. Yeah, it's congrats, okay. Lizzie. Thank you. Like always, our quick disclaimer, the three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us, leave us a comment, and we will all continue learning. Today, we're going to go back in history, the farthest we've gone in She Built's podcast. Oh, how far? So our story today takes place several centuries ago. But I think we need to go back even further and give the listeners some background of how this all went down through history. Now, for an extremely brief history on the beginning of the Sultanate of Women. The Sultanate of Women was a period in time of the Ottoman Empire where women had more power than they had for a really long time before that. For this long time in the Ottoman Empire, sultans did not marry because marriage brought status to women. The wife of a sultan became a sultan, too, and she had similar privileges and status as her husband. Sultans wanted to be the one and only, so they started just taking slaves as concubines to produce male heirs for them. 
When the concubines had babies, they were taken from the palace outside of the capital to raise the children, and one lucky boy would someday become Sultan. But in the 16th century, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent said goodbye to that tradition and married his favorite concubine, Hurem Sultan. With her began what is known as the Sultanate of Women. It was a time when the wives and mothers of the Sultan had more power than they previously had, and they exercised that power in large part through architectural patronage. When Suleiman married Hurem, they created a title for the wife of a Sultan, Haseki Sultan. So when Hurem became Haseki Hurem Sultan, the next important thing that happened was that she stayed with him in the palace, even after they had children. And the children stayed there too. Because remember, before that, the baby mamas and the potential future sultans didn't live in the palace. So the Haseki Sultan staying in the palace was huge because she remained in the middle of all of the action. And she was an advisor to her husband. Another woman that became very important during Suleiman's time was the mother of the sultan. She received the title Valide Sultan. Some argue that the Valide Sultan was the most important person after the sultan. For religious reasons, mothers were held at a high regard, and also politically in cases when the sultan was too young or incompetent to rule, the Valide Sultan was the default or the behind-the-scenes leader. So after Suleiman passed away, the titles and the power for the wives and the mothers of the sultan became the norm. And like we said, they showed their power through buildings that they commissioned. This group of ladies were totally overlooked throughout history. Their work was either attributed to the male sultans or just not given any importance. But then gender studies became more popular and historians started paying more attention. And while they were doing their research on these women, they started making connections and they realized the importance of all of these Haseki and Valide Sultans. Not shocking at all. We've already heard so many stories of women whose work or even their existence within the profession was overshadowed by a male partner. And this won't be the last time. Well, that time in which these now famous Haseki and Valide Sultans all lived and were doing their thing, it's what we called today the Sultanate of Women. It was about a hundred years. It is debated that the last of these important ladies was Valide Tuhran Sultan. After her, there was a decline for the women in these positions. But that power that these women had didn't mean it was all sunflowers and rainbows for the Haseki and the Valide Sultans. There were a lot of men that were not very happy about any of it. Supposedly, one time, an ambassador wanted to send a letter to a Haseki sultan through a grand vizier, and the grand vizier got super annoyed and said, I ain't your messenger, and the Haseki is just another slave. She ain't special. But if that were true, why'd he get his panties all in a bunch like that? Mm. So they just didn't like women. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he just wanted to go around her because he knew that the Haseki had the ear of the sultan. Exactly. In fact, supposedly, ambassadors used to say that if you wanted to do business in the Ottoman Empire, you gotta go straight to the Valley de Sultan. Mom holds all the power. <laughs> Always. 
And now, back to our story of Valide Turhan Sultan. Listeners, I promise I kept that as brief as I could and that you needed to know all of that to appreciate Turhan's story. Okay, Nudri, you've made us wait long enough. Tell us her story already. <laughs> okay, okay. <clears throat> the time was 1627. The place, what we know today as southwestern Russia. At some point in her young life, baby girl X was captured in a raid and sold as a slave. Wait, wait, what? Raid? Slave? Baby girl X? Thought you said her name was Turhan. And Russia? Turhan. Yeah, Russia. <laughs> well, okay. So the Ottoman Empire was huge, right? It wasn't yeah. just Turkey. Mm. It had like parts of Asia, parts of Europe, parts of southwestern Russia. And Turhan was the name they gave her when she arrived at the palace. But we aren't sure what her name was when she was born. Okay. Yeah. So for now, we're going to call her Baby Girl X. Okay. Baby Girl X was captured, and then she was given as a gift to the mother of the sultan, Valide Kosem Sultan. With all due respect, we'll call her Kosem. And that's how Baby Girl X became Turhan, and she went to live in the harem in Topkapı Palace. Ooh. Remember when we went to Topkapı Palace? I really loved yes. it. It's really beautiful with all of the tiles and the domes. Yes. I was just, in general, I think I just loved all the Islamic architecture of it all. The ornateness of the tile, the arches. Mm-hmm. But Nordri, how did Turan go from slave to sultan then? Did Kosem adopt her? No, no. Kosem kept her as a special slave. So this sounds remarkable to us. Slave to sultan, racks to riches. But it turns out this was very normal. Women slaves in the harem were groomed to be concubines or the wife of the sultan, depending on what the sultan wanted. So Kosem groomed Turhan to be the wife of her son, Sultan Ibrahim. Is that Ibrahim the Mad? Same guy. So eventually Kosem gets her way and Turhan marries Ibrahim the Mad. And then Turhan was officially... Haseki Turhan Sultan, but we'll keep calling her Turhan for short. Okay, that'll make it easier to follow the story. Yeah, I thought so. So Ibrahim and Turhan had their first son, Mehmet IV. And then one day, Ibrahim and Turhan got in a fight and he threw baby Mehmet, his firstborn son, his future heir, into a body of water. What? A body of... Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, some sources say pool, others say cistern. I'm going to play it safe and I'm going to call it a body of water. That Yikes. still doesn't make it better. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ibrahim was real cray. <laughs> Clearly. So Kosem got together with our lady Turhan and told her, Listen. We need to put a stop to my son's crap. So we're going to take him out and your six-year-old child is going to be Sultan. Anything has to be better than what we've got going on right now. 
I gotta say, I feel like I understand where Valide Kosem Sultan was coming from. Well, yeah, Ibrahim is crazy. <laughs> so the plan is in place. Bam, they strike. Ibrahim is out. Mehmet IV is in. Bam. <laughs> Mehmet is Sultan. His mother is Turhan. She should be Valide Sultan now, right? Right. Well, Grandmama, original Valide Kosem Sultan, had another thing coming. She was like, little girl, you're barely an adult. I have tons of experience in this game. I'm going to keep the title of Valide Sultan and I will reign while your child comes of age. End of story. But no, it was <laughs> not end of story. Turhan started getting people to support her claim of Valide Sultan. Okay. So she was just a pawn in Kusem's plan to oust her, essentially. Oh, mm -hmm. drama. Yeah, but Turhan didn't take this sitting down. Oh. At this point, I was like, Turhan Sultan, what are you doing? Need I remind you who Valide Kosem Sultan is? This is the woman that plotted a coup against her own son, the fruit of her loins. <laughs> she could probably care two you-know-what's less about taking out some girl that used to be her slave. <laughs> right? I mean, clearly nothing will stop Kusem from keeping power. Yes. Valide Kusem sure seems like the type of person that you do not want to be on her bad side. <laughs> but also can we talk about like no wonder ibrahim the mad was mad because she had a mother that was like we gotta cut him out to see crazy that's crazy trying to kill him yeah i think i think he was crazy before his mom yeah, tried I to think kill him that she's killing him because but, he's crazy but who, but, but who birthed who birthed ibrahim <laughs> The cray. Nurture versus nature. Okay, debatable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, Turhan, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Gosem is bad for your health. She comes in real stealth. She starts planning to take <laughs> Mehmed out. Her grandson. Blood is thicker than water means nothing to this lady, okay? She got a whole gallery of grandsons to choose from. <laughs> she opens her little photo album and finds another grandson with a less ambitious mother to become the new sultan. What? Wait, what? <laughs> but guess what? Kosem was not all that stealth because Turhan found out. Yeah, she did. Snap. What happened next is debated among historians. I'll tell you the version of the popular Turkish TV show, The Magnificent Century Kosem, or La Sultana, because that story is way more dramatic. All right, bring it. Kosem poisoned Mehmet's milk. Oh. One of Kosem's servants felt too much guilt over killing a child and warned Turhan. Then... Just before Mehmed drank the milk, I'm telling you, he had the milk in his lips. Turhan storms in and takes it away from him. Slap. Exactly. Slap. <laughs> slap that milk out. <laughs> Spilled milk everywhere. So 
at this point, Kosem was like, oh, okay. I wanted to do this the easy, painless way, poisoning your son. But you forced my hand. Let there be blood. What? This is like real life Game of Thrones. What happens next? What happens next? (laughs) The next day, (laughs) Kosem planned for her army to murder both Mehmed and Turhan. But again, Kosem had a double agent in her crew. Turhan got word of the plot and organized a counterplot. (gasps) In the end, and about an hour and a half into the episode, (laughs) Kosem was dead. Dang. Whoa. Okay, that was dramatic. But what in all of that actually happened versus the soap opera (laughs) storyline? I mean, I loved it, but... Yeah. Edge of messy. Kosem plotted to murder Mehmed and Turhan. Turhan found out. But historians debate if Turhan gave the order to kill Kosem or not. At the end of the day, Turhan's people murdered Kosem. And now we officially have Valide Turhan Sultan. Long live the Valide Sultan. Here, here. So what did Turhan do as Valide Sultan? Mehmed was nine years old when all of this went down and a super mama's boy. So Turhan was the behind the scenes ruler for many years while he grew up. And even as an adult, he consulted her on many things. Because of this, some say she was the most powerful Valide Sultan that ever lived. Okay. And as Valide Sultan, she got to building her legacy. Yeah, bring it on. And to add to our list of arc ventures. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we've discussed that they used architecture to show their power, but we haven't talked about how. Depending on what the use of the space was, the Sultan displayed what her priorities were, what was important to her, and that shaped her public image. So the Haseki and the Valide Sultans had to be smart about this. They commissioned public works such as Sibyles, bazaars, mosques. Mosques were a great one because it displayed their charity and their piety. Oh, I see. So they would build certain types of buildings in order to win political favor with certain groups of citizens? Yeah, these ladies were strategic. If I were a sultan, I would build bazaars and mosques, which are a must. And I would add to that list a chocolate store, (laughs) a chocolate emporium. Because that sounds like a great public service to me. What would you guys provide your people? I think housing for those who needed it or orphanages. I would do schools and libraries. I would do a concert hall, probably some more public spaces throughout the city. Um, if I was in Istanbul, I would have more Turkish baths because those Ooh, were nice. Yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. And if I was a sultan in America, I would create some over here too because we need some more baths. Mm. Well, you would both make great sultans. <laughs> <laughs> I like where your priorities are at. Well, Turhan started with a Sebile in 1653 in Bekshitach district. Oh, I forgot to ask before. What is a Sebile? So a sebile is a public fountain of civic and religious importance. On our arc ventures, we probably would have seen them at crossroads, in the middle of city squares, and outside of mosques. The sebiles provided drinking water for travelers, 
and were also used for the ritual of purification before prayer. I bet you we passed by a bunch of them while we were in Istanbul and we didn't even notice. Yeah. During Turhan's reign, I say that with air quotes. (laughs) Right, because the little boy was a sultan, but she was the one really calling all the shots. The Ottoman Empire had beef with the Venetians, so in 1658, Turhan built two fortresses at the entrance of the Dardanelles, one on the European side called Sedul Bahur, and one in the Asian side called Kumkale. And we can still see those today. Both of these had a mosque, madrasas, hammams, and bazaars. That's strategic. The Dardanelles is a narrow natural strait of water, and it is internationally significant because it forms the continental boundary between Europe and Asia in northwest Turkey. So most people think of the Bosphorus where that splits Istanbul. It's kind of a similar strait, and it, it divides Asia and Europe. But the Dardanelles is a strait that connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Sea of Marmara, which is a small sea before then you get to the Bosphorus and then to the Black Sea. Also, can we talk about what she built in the fortress? Because they served specific purposes. They catered to each specific audience, like the pillars of society back then. The mosque, religion, check. Madrasa, which is a school, education, check. Hammam, or bathhouse, health and cleanliness, check. The bazaar, economy, check. Yeah. Kosem was worried Turhan was too young to know what she was doing, but at least architecturally, Turhan had learned from the Sultanate of Women who had been building those spaces for years. In fact, one of Turhan's most important works, the Yeni Mosque Complex in Istanbul, is a project that was started by a different Valide Sultan. Ooh, sounds like another juicy tea brewer. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I don't know about Juicy, but here we go. 56 years before Turhan was Valide, the Valide was Safiye Sultan. Safiye picked Eminonu as the site for her new mosque. Ooh, Eminonu is a huge hub in Istanbul, and it's a major port right at the start of the Golden Horn, which is a major urban waterway that comes off of the Bosphorus. We were there, right? That's near where the famous Spice Bazaar is? Yeah. We actually took a ferry across the Bosphorus to the Asian side of Istanbul, and we took it from the Eminonu port. That is so cool. Yeah. We were were in Turan's stomping grounds, and we didn't even know it. Right? I know. The whole time I was looking things up, I was wondering, did I see that? Did I pass that? We walked so much during that trip. Yeah, we did. Well, back to Safiya's project. It was very important for everything Lizzie mentioned, because even back then, so many years ago, it was a central commercial area like it is today. But it was also a very political location because it was an area where non-Muslims lived. This was Safiya's way of Islamicizing the area. It was a tough but smart move for Safiya because if she succeeded, The merchants would spread the word about her new building and her power through Europe and Asia. You know what I mean? Yeah, it also seems like she was conquering new land, too. Yeah, sort of. Naturally, people that were living there were not super thrilled. I mean, eminent domain, not everyone's favorite subject. It depends on who you're talking to, I guess. 
Yeah. Well, just like today, displacing people from their homes is a long legal process. It was a long, hard process for Safiye, so the project took a while to start. But it did. Yay for the project, but sad for the displaced people. Yeah. Yeah. It was started in 1597. And then Safiye's son, Mehmet III, died in 1603. And the project stopped because she was no longer Valide Sultan. I didn't tell you this before, but when you were no longer Valide Sultan, you were taken away to the old palace to retire. Say what? Well, I guess that kind of makes sense so that the old Valide doesn't interfere with the new one. Like that horror story we heard about (laughs) earlier today. (laughs) Yeah, none of that. So Safiye retired and her mosque project was abandoned because her grandson commissioned the Blue Mosque. You know, that little mosque. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I remember we went there. (laughs) Yeah, we did. The super important, very famous Blue Mosque. I was being sarcastic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Naturally, that one took all the attention and people stopped caring about Yeni Mosque. Yeah. Goodbye, project. Gotcha. Mm. And to add insult to injury, Safiya's abandoned site was in part destroyed in a fire in 1660. All that remained was the foundation. Oh, yes, that is some bad juju. You're telling me. But Turhan wasn't scared. That same year, she decided to bring the Yeni Mosque complex back to life. And I'm sure she recognized the architectural importance of the project, too. Right. Turhan took advantage of the fact that the foundation for the project was there so she would save money on that. Ooh, working smarter, not harder. I like it. (laughs) But non-Muslims had moved back to the area again. So Turhan also saw it as her Islamization mission, too. She started the project back up in 1660. The complex was made up of a mosque, madrasas, sebiles, a bazaar, and a big tomb. The mosque was built similarly to what Safiye had planned half a century before, since the foundation was already there, like we talked about. It was elevated on the site to show its importance. There's not a lot of windows, which makes it kind of dark inside, but that means there's a lot of interior facade space, and it's decorated with isnic tiles. The tile work is one of my favorite things about Islamic architecture. Yes, the tile work. It's one of my favorite things, too. I love all of the colors and patterns. Yeah. So the mosque was similar to Safiye's, but the rest of the buildings and the layout of the complex are a different story. Every building was placed in key locations so that from her private quarters in the royal pavilion, Turhan had a view of the golden horn, the entrance of the complex, the madrasa, the sebile, the tomb, and the bazaar. (laughs) So basically the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. She made sure that everything was placed in a way that not only could she see the entire place from her apartment, but she could not be seen while she was in the apartment. Oh, like a panopticon. Yes. Okay, so for those of you that don't know, a panopticon is basically like an observation tower that is placed at the center. 
Um, typically, these were used in prisons where the observer can see everything and the others cannot. Right. So from the complex, people couldn't see her watching right. them. Mm-hmm. Pretty neat. <laughs> Pretty smart. <laughs> the project was completed in 1670s. Oh, I forgot to mention the bazaar in the complex is the famous Spice Bazaar. Ooh. Ooh. That's really cool. I love me some spices. Mm-hmm. The tomb inside the complex is also an important piece of architecture. It's a square plan. Windows around the building flood the inside with light. And it's all gorgeously ornate inside with Isnic tiles and carvings. It's the final resting place of 44 people, including five sultans, which actually includes Turhan, who passed away in 1683. Wow. She had an intense life with all that drama in the beginning and whatnot. <laughs> but it sounds like she left the city a really great and lasting building. Yep. This is such an incredible story. This is so interesting in like the design, the power structure, the culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. I would like to close this part of our story by mentioning the ladies that made up the Sultanate of Women and one important work for each. Good idea. I can start with the one who started it all, Hurem Sultan. She commissioned the Haseki Sultan complex completed in 1551. It was the first work of Sinan, the famous Ottoman Empire architect, as chief imperial architect. Then Mihriman Sultan, her daughter, commissioned the Mihriman Sultan Mosque, built in 1547. Nurbanu Sultan, has the Atik Valide complex done in 1583, and all three of these complexes have a mosque, Sebile, Madrasa, and Hammam. The Haseki Sultan complex and the Atik Valide complex also have a soup kitchen and a hospital. Safiye Sultan started the Yeni Mosque. Haseki Halime Sultan followed in the timeline, but was not known as a patron of architecture. Hadan Sultan made an endowment for the preservation of her husband, Mehmed III's tomb. And last but certainly not least, today's antagonist, Kusam <laughs> Sultan, is responsible for the Chinili Mosque in 1640. Almost all these ladies that made up the Sultanate of Women could easily have their own episode, even Kusam. I mean, she was the bad guy today, but she actually did a lot of good for her people for many years. Turhan had a lot of examples of what women sultans could do. Wow, this has all been really fascinating. I definitely learned something new today. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad. <laughs> now it's time for our karyatid. Lizzie, what's a karyatid? A karyatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. In each episode, we present a karyatid a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. This week's karyatid is... <laughs> Sherry Larjani! <laughs> Sherry. Sherry Larjani is president and managing partner at Spotlight Development, Inc. in Toronto, Canada. She began her career as a junior architect designer and eventually made the move to real estate development with Spotlight Development. 
Sherry is our character today because she's involved in a very special housing project, Canada's first all-woman real estate development. Everyone involved from the developers, architects, engineers, landscape architects, all the project managers are women. And this reminds me of the Sultanate of Women, Mm -hmm. a group of ladies developing architecture. That is so cool. Very nice. Very nice. The spark for the project began when one of the ladies, Taya Cook, director of development at Urban Capital, a real estate development company in Toronto, read an article called The Kings of Toronto Real Estate highlighted 20 people killing it in the Toronto real estate game, and they were all men. Of course they were. Mm. Mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) Our grunt game is on point. (laughs) (laughs) What was really highlighted was male dominance in the real estate development field. I'm guessing some ladies had something to say about that. You know it. Taya said, I know there's so many women involved in real estate development in Toronto, and we're often not at the forefront of projects in leadership positions or visualized. And I think because of that, a lot of women may not enter into the industry. It's so important not only to recognize that the field is male dominated, but also to recognize and elevate the women that are in the field and making them more visible. Totally agree. So then Taya called up her buddy, Sherry, and told her, let's put an all-woman team and show the real estate world who the queens are. And Sherry was like, heck yeah, sign me up. Give me that crown. (laughs) And they got to work. There is this really powerful photo of their team of all these amazing professional ladies on the site. I'll put it on the show notes because it's important to see. Yeah. yeah. Sherry reminds me of Turhan because she has this never give up, go getter attitude. Let me read you this quote from her. There aren't many entrepreneurial women coming into the industry on their own. No one took me seriously until I bought my first piece of land. We need to give women positive role models and prove that a career in development is a viable path. It's incumbent upon all of us to change this narrative. Yes, yes, that. Yes, this is great. We need more (laughs) women like this and to elevate one another. And this is such a great example of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, totally the Sultanate of Women, minus Kosem and the murdering family members. None of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank God that would not work today. Not so much. Not so much. (laughs) Okay, before we sign off, we want to give a huge desecular to Bashar yes. for teaching us. Yes, thank you, Bashar. Woo, yeah. <laughs> for teaching us to pronounce all the Turkish words. <laughs> CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, desecular, you listening. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed learning about Turhan Sultan and Sherry, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, to Shekular. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your cats. 
give us five stars on iTunes, write us a review, and this will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people and pets to learn about these amazing ladies with us today. I didn't know pets were such a yep. <laughs> cat mm-hmm. specifically. Yep. <laughs> I didn't know you were a cat lady. I'm not, but everybody deserves to listen. Every species. We're all inclusive. If you got ears, you listen. Even <laughs> corn. Ears of corn. Everybody listens. <laughs> we are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com. Or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on Twitter at SheBuildsPop. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I didn't know this uh, one was mine. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye? Is that just literally bye-bye. what I say? Yes, bye-bye. What's the other one, though? The other one sounded cool. You could say Hochchal and hopefully that's good. That's what I saw on YouTube. Hochchal? You mean Jochchal? Doge. Oh, go Google it. Did there we ask Bashar one. that or no? Bashar said bye bye. Yeah, that they typically say bye bye or they say something else. Oh crap. Okay, fine. I'll say bye bye. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.